Well, here we are. I think my mic's on. Lights aren't on, though. What do I do? Start talking. Okay. We're talking in the dark here. Welcome to Veritas. It's the last one of the semester. Seriously, though, are the lights going to come on? It's okay. I'm not mad. <laughs> Lily's mad. I'm not mad. It's fine. Hey, there we go. Right, it's good. Thank you. Yes, give a clap to the lights. Good job, lights. Good. Hey, welcome to Veritas, the last one of the fall 2017 semester. Um, it's all right. That's hilarious. I'm just going to keep talking. They'll figure it out. So, um, law firm in Louisiana, a few years ago, they put together this interesting study that proves the reality that we are all too often blind to the real dangers out there. Here's a couple of examples. They interviewed some people and they found uh, a lot of people are scared of flying, but not driving, but it shouldn't be the case. See, the odds of you dying in a plane crash are point zero 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 one percent but the odds that you die in a car crash are 1% to 2%. Here's another one. Lots of people are terrified of heights, myself included, uh, but they're not as terrified of getting their identity stolen. But it should be the total opposite. The odds that you die from heights are 1 in 65,000, but the odds that you get your identity stolen is 1 in 200. Room this size, a couple of you in here. Hope it's you, it's not me. Uh, how about this one? Some people are scared of riding roller coasters, uh, but not uh, with, with playing with fireworks. My dad, Kyle Richter, terrified of, of uh, riding roller coasters, but fine with playing with fireworks. Shouldn't be the case. Roller coaster injury odds, 1 in 300 million. Firework injury odds, 1 in 20,000. There you go. Last one, and my personal favorite. This is hilarious. More people are scared of shark bites than they are of their spouse. The odds that you die from a shark bite are 1 in 300 million. The odds that you die from your spouse, 1 in 135,000. All right? So if there's one thing we've learned, don't fear sharks, fear your spouse. Okay? Those of you who are dating, make sure you do a background check. Okay. But you see the point, right? You see the point. The study proves that we are oftentimes blind to the real dangers that are out there. Tonight at Veritas, we're going to wrap up our series through the New Testament book of Philippians, and we're mainly going to be looking at one verse, just one verse tonight. So if you have your Bibles, turn or flip whatever on your phones to Philippians 4, verse 1. Philippians 4, verse 1. <clears throat> if you've been with us for a while, you know that Paul is the apostle, and he's writing from prison to a group of Christians in the ancient city of Philippi, and, and those Christians are essentially in hostile territory. See, this small group of Christians was living among thousands and thousands of non-Christians and pagans in the Roman Empire. And they're a, they're a minority culture that's trying to be faithful among a culture that is pressuring them and enticing them to move on from their faith. <clears throat> we can think about it like this. You know, these, these people, it's sort of like they moved into the, to a neighborhood. They're the new ones in the block, and they've got this fantastic, this brand new, this safe house. And yet they start just, they start getting knocks at their door a couple times a day. And these knocks are people who are pressuring them and enticing them to move out. You've got to move out of this house. And they're told, for instance, that if they don't worship the Roman emperor, then they are going to risk persecution. You see, the Roman Empire was a very, very tolerant empire. They didn't care who you worshipped. They didn't care what you worshipped. They didn't care how you worshipped, so long as you admitted 
that along with those gods and whoever, that the Roman emperor was also God incarnate. You had to acknowledge that, and you could do whatever you wanted. So you see the problem with these early Christians. They couldn't do that because they knew Jesus. They knew he died and he rose. This Roman emperor wasn't God incarnate. Jesus was God incarnate. And so that's the problem. That's the, the risks and the pressures that they felt. You know, these Christians were told also that, look, life is going to be so much better and so much easier if you just kind of give in, if you just move on. You're going to have access to elite circles. You're going to get the best jobs. Life is going to go better for you if you just move on. They couldn't, they couldn't do it. On and on it goes. So the Apostle Paul, though, the Apostle Paul understands the dynamics going on here. He understands their dilemma. He knows that, that they've just moved into this house, and he knows that there's going to be these knocks at the door. They're going to be susceptible and vulnerable and blind to these pressures and to these enticements from the culture around them. What about you? What about us? Who or, or what is pressuring you to, to move on? Who or what are those enticing things out there, enticing causes, enticing people that are asking you to, to move on from your faith in Jesus? Let me ask you this way. If you found out that five years from now that you for sure were not a Christian, why? Would you know? What would the pressures be? What would, what would have pressured you into making that decision? What or who would have been so enticing that you decided, you know what, my relationship with Jesus isn't worth it, I'm going to move on? What would that be? Do you know? For God's people, the real dangers, the biggest dangers are those pressures and those enticements that we feel in our hearts, in our minds to move out, to move on from Jesus. But the good news, the good news is that God knows those real dangers. He knows what they are, and he tells us how to fight them. And this is where we get to Philippians 4, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in the Lord. Don't move. Stay put. Don't go with them. Don't be pressured. Don't be intimidated. Don't be enticed. Stay put. Stand firm. See, in these two words, God, through the Apostle Paul, reveals just what life is going to be like, a pattern of conduct, something that has to happen if we're going to live a Christian life, for sure for the rest of our lives, but especially during stressful times like finals week and over Christmas break when maybe the normal structure of our schedules and lives kind of goes away and there's temptations and there's pressures and we're not in a normal situation. This is the pattern of conduct that has to happen. We have to stand firm. And of course, to do that, we've got to know the threats. We've got to know who and what is knocking at our door, pressuring us and enticing us to move on. A couple of weeks ago, I asked several of you kind of what those were. You know, what are the pressures you're feeling? What are the enticements that you see that could encourage you to move on from your faith in Jesus? And a lot of you responded, so thanks to you uh, for helping me create this list. I want to talk about four things, four things that I think you and I need to stand firm Against And for each one, we'll just talk about what it is. We'll talk about why it's enticing and why it brings a lot of pressure. But then ultimately, why it doesn't work. Okay, so here's the first. The pressure and the enticement of apathy. The enticement and pressure of apathy. So, you know, in general, apathy, it's, it's sort of just an indifference to life, a lack of interest in how things turn out. You know, if we're apathetic, we're willingly shutting ourselves off from the outside world, our jobs, our commitments, our responsibilities, whatever that may 
whatever that may be. <clears throat> a lot of times we do this, and, and myself included, when things get overwhelming, when things get stressed. You know, my guess is that some of you are starting to feel overwhelmed and stressed at finals, at internship deadlines, at graduation and trying to figure out jobs. You know, there's so much to do and to think about, but you know what? Shutting down and escaping and turning off and being apathetic about all that, it seems like a much more enticing option. And I'll give you this, it actually is at times. There's something great about being apathetic because it's a lot easier. I mean, let's just be honest. It feels okay, or it feels like that sometimes too, because we've, we've earned, also feel like we've earned the right to be apathetic. You know, we tell ourselves, I've worked hard all week long, studied the test. I just need to blow off some steam, and I need to play video games for seven hours. You know, I've, I've, I've worked really hard, I've served, I've studied, whatever, and now I'm going to go watch two seasons of a show in a night. Whatever it is, we feel like we've earned it. Here's why it doesn't work, though. Here's why it doesn't work. First and foremost, it's not pleasing to God. In the book of Revelation in the New Testament, chapter 3, the Apostle John is writing and speaking to different groups of churches. And to this one church, this is what he says. I know your works. You are neither cold or hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's how Jesus views your and my apathy. But the second reason it won't work is we weren't created to be apathetic. You know, God has hardwired each and every one of us to participate in something bigger than ourselves, to play a part in his story. If and when we neglect that, if and when we serve our own stories, our own kingdoms, live for ourselves, then ultimately we're losing. Jesus says this in Mark 8, starting in verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So the second thing we need to stand firm. First thing was apathy. Second thing we need to stand firm against is the pressure and the enticement of believing that I'm above it all. Believing that I'm above it all. Now, I'm proud of the person who sent me this because it probably was a little bit of a sobering admission. It took a little bit of courage to admit this tendency about themselves. And, and this person, you know, who sent me this, they're an upperclassman, and they said that they sometimes feel the pressure and they feel enticed to believe that they don't need Veritas. They've been around enough, they've heard enough sermons, they kind of know what it's like, that they can just move on. You know, this, this I'm above it all mentality says that I've, like I said, I, I've learned all there is to know about a certain topic. I've been so many times, I've got it. Can we just move on to something better? You know, have you ever seen what a sermon at church is going to be like or uh, listened to something and you're like, oh yeah, I, I read that yesterday. I'll just move on, kind of know it. Have you ever not gone to a small group uh, if it's a connect and pray week because you know how that connect and pray is going to go and you know what everybody's going to say and you're just like, you know, I'm, I'm good, I'm fine. I've done that. I'm not above that. And this is really enticing, I'll give you it, because it, it kind of elevates us above a certain group of people. You know, if we believe that we're above something, it means that we've mastered it. We've got it, and we need to move on. We need a new challenge. We need a different set of rules, and that, and that makes us stand out. But here's why it doesn't work. Our, our confidence is not trustworthy. That confidence isn't trustworthy. <clears throat> Reading a really interesting book about decision-making called Decisive, and in it they gave some statistics about a couple of studies they've done. Um, so with doctors, 
when doctors were 100% certain of a diagnosis, they were wrong 40% of the time. They also followed a group of students who were making decisions and had to calculate what percentage they think they would have been wrong. The students who thought there was a 1% chance that they were wrong, they were wrong 27% of the time. It's pretty interesting, pretty sobering. And the point is, you know, there's danger in putting a trust in our confidence. There's a danger in believing that we're above it all, that we've learned it, that we've, that we've got it. Now, I'll give you this. Some of you in here have been Christians for a long time. You've been Christians for a lot longer than some other people, and that's fine. You've probably got more knowledge than other people. Great. But that does not give you and me a pass to skip out on things that may be things that are familiar. That doesn't give us a pass to skip out. So the pressure of believing I'm above it all. The third pressure is the pressure of sexual sin. Let me start by saying this. Sex isn't the problem. Sex is not the problem. Sex is actually a good thing. It's created by God, intended to be enjoyed by a husband and a wife in the context of marriage. But if you know the story, sin entered the world and corrupted all of God's good gifts, sex included. And now the, you know, the unfortunate news reports we've been seeing and hearing today about all the stuff going on, you know, they're a fresh reminder that our sexuality is corrupted, that it's broken, that there's a problem there. I don't think we need to convince, I need to convince anybody in here of that. You know, it's so common today to believe that, look, it's my body, so I can do what I want with it. Or we believe that if only I could have sex, gosh, if I could just have sex, that's the ultimate goal, then I would be happy. For those of us who are having sex, maybe it's not that great, and you think, if I could only have better sex, then it would be good. On and on and on it goes, and you know what? It's all a lie. It's very dangerous, and it's all a lie. What is sexual sin? I'll let, I'll let Jesus define what sexual sin is. He says this in Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, or vice versa, however that goes, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus says that sexual sin is lusting. And so what is lust? Lust is not sexual desire. Lust is not sexual desire. Lust is misdirected desire. It's misdirected desire. You see, again, sexual desire is not bad. It's a gift from God. But the key issue is where is that directed? So when a man stares at a woman or vice versa, however that goes, it's not how long the look is but it is the intent behind the look. To lust means that we're sexually fantasizing about someone who's not our spouse. To lust is to foster, foster sexual temptation in our imagination. It's to get ourselves emotionally and physically to a level of excitement or arousal in our mind and in our thoughts and in our hearts with somebody who's not our spouse. And so, of course, of course sexual sin is pornography. But it's not just pornography. It's any sort of revealing, obscene, indecent picture. It's experimenting sexually with a boyfriend or girlfriend. It's hooking up with people, maybe somebody that is back home that's not around here. Whoever it is, whatever it is, these temptations, they're all around us. And unfortunately, they're not going to go away anytime soon. They're with us our whole life. They're there when you're married. They're there when you become a Christian. They're there when you've been a Christian for a while. It's always there. It's always there. And of course, sexual temptation, lusting, it's enticing precisely because it's rooted in something so good. 
Those are some of the most enticing things. The best things, the good things, are the most powerful. You know, the, the pleasures that sex brings are good, and it's not wrong. It's not wrong to want that. It's actually quite good because we were created for that. But the problem is, again, where those desires are indulged and pursued. And so any desire pursued outside the context of marriage between a man and a woman is a sin, according to God, according to Jesus. Uh, could spend a lot of time on why it doesn't work. I'll just give one practical reason. If we continually indulge sexual desire outside its context, we're going to be desensitized to it. <clears throat> Especially, you know, when we do this, when we indulge these desires by looking at pornography, we become slaves to the law of diminishing returns. You know, this says you just need more and more of something to get the same fix. You know, if you're somebody in the midst of this struggle right now, you know, I don't have to convince you, that this desensitization, gosh, it affects your relationships with other people, and it for sure affects your relationship with God if you're trying to fight to believe. It's kind of like this. I've got a couple pictures here. Think of our hearts as fields capable of producing and cultivating lots of crops. And we are created inherently with fertile soil, kind of like this. Good soil, rich soil, able to produce lots of good crops. But when we indulge sexual sin, we open ourselves up to it and we don't fight it. This is what happens. Our hearts become cracked and they become dry and they become incapable of sustaining any sort of life. I, I'm confident, I'm confident that some of you feel like this right now concerning your relationship with God because of those viewing habits. So there's pressure of sexual sin. Last one. We need to stand firm against it. The pressure to listen to our own self-talk. The pressure to listen to our own self-talk. You know what I mean by self-talk, right? It's that conversation that you have with yourself inside your own head. You know, maybe some of you are having that conversation in your head right now about something we just talked about, about your sexual sin. Maybe you're telling yourself right now that there is no way that I would tell anybody about that. There is no way that if I found, this were found out, that God would ever accept me, that my friends would ever accept me, that this community would ever accept me. Maybe that's the conversation going on in, in your head. If it's not sexual sin, maybe it's some other sin. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever had that conversation? <clears throat> you know, you, you tell yourself, what we start believing is that we have to deal with these sins, with these issues on our own, by ourselves before we can come to God. We can't tell anybody else about it because they'll reject us. They won't understand. If we're a leader in some capacity, whether we lead a small group, whether we're involved in some sort of business or fraternity or sorority, whatever it is, we for sure can't tell them because then we'd be letting down all those people. And then I'd be found out and it'd just be one big shameful mess. I can't do that. I've got to keep it together. Maybe that's the conversation. Now, this is enticing a little bit because it holds out hope that we can get off scot-free. It holds out hope that we can have this squeaky clean image of somebody who's got it all together. Nobody knows that my image and reputation, it's still there. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's impossible to hide our sins. Really hard to hide them from other people. Uh, for sure impossible to hide it with God. That's what he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. You see, here's the reality about our self-talk. The conversation in your head, if it leads you to believe that you need to stay away from God because you're too dirty, if it leads you to believe 
that, you know what, it's better to do it without God, I don't need him, then that's a demonic conversation. Now, that's strong language, and intentionally so. You see, the reality of the biblical story is there's an enemy out there that's trying to destroy us, whether we know it or not. And one of his best tactics, convincing other people that he actually doesn't exist. It's genius. You see, this enemy, he's, creep, he's crafty. He's creepy. He's crafty, and he's sneaky. <laughs> creepy. And he's smart. He's smarter than you and me. And if we're a Christian, we're on his list. We're on his list, and he wants to destroy us. What a better way to separate us from God. What a better way to bring us down and to convince us, A, that it's our own conscience, that it's our own thought, but B, that we can't come near God. That's exactly what he wants. And so if that self-talk is leading you to isolate, to separate, then it's demonic. You're not talking to yourself. You're not listening to God. You're listening to Satan. Apathy. I'm above it all. Sexual sin, self-talk, it's a powerful list. It's an enticing list. It's a lot. It's a lot to deal with, particularly in the face of finals coming up and Christmas break coming up. How do we stand firm? How do we do it? Let's go back through our list. I'll give just a couple, a couple things here. How do we stand firm against apathy? Here's one thing to do. Commit to learning, reading, and studying. Commit to learning, reading, and studying. Instead of only entertaining yourself through video games or Netflix, Facebook, Instagram, which, by the way, I'm going to watch some Netflix shows over break. Nothing wrong with it. But that's not the only thing I want to try to do. Rather than just only doing that, listen to a podcast on a topic that you find interesting or on a topic that you need to learn about. Find a realistic Bible reading plan. You know, the Veritas has been doing one. Your story and God's story, the crossing, the church that we're connected to is going to put one up. We've got some stuff for you uh, after tonight for Advent. Read a book of the Bible you never read before. Read a book that encourages you and encourages you spiritually. Find some friends to talk about it with. Research a topic you got a lot of questions about. I don't know. Luke 2, verse 52. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It says this, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. You see, God's goal is to make each and every one of us more and more like Jesus. See, he's the standard of what a person should be. And guess what? Jesus did not have a needle inserted into the back of his head and download all he needed to know just like that. You know, he wasn't in the matrix. He actually had to learn this. He had to memorize his Bible. He had to learn things about the world around him. If Jesus had to do that, how much more do you and I need to do that? So it's worth asking yourself lots of things, but for sure this. When are you going to read your Bible during finals week? When are you going to read your Bible over Christmas break? Now, I asked that question. Let me take some of the pressure off. Here we go. If and when you read your Bible, spoiler alert, it's probably not going to be an earth-shattering experience. The clouds are not going to part. God's not going to come down and punch you in the head and say, this is what you learn. That'd be kind of cool. If it does, talk to me. I'd love to hear about it. But it's probably not how it's going to be. That's not how it's been for me over the last 10, 12 years. It's okay if it's not like that for you. You know, you don't need to read your Bible for an hour a day. If you do, that's awesome. But if you don't, it's okay. It's not a choice between 60 minutes and zero minutes. Maybe you just read it for 10 minutes a day. Maybe you find an app that will actually read a chapter of the Bible to you so that when you're walking to class, when you're driving something, you just actually listen to it. Five, 10 minutes, doesn't need to be all an hour. You know, sometimes I, I think it's easy to treat reading the Bible like going on vacation. You know, vacations are so restful and relaxing and you can just lounge around and not do too much. But who's got time for vacation right now? Not me. Probably not you either. Better, 
Maybe to think about reading the Bible like going to the gym. Better to think about it like going to the gym. You know, if you want to get in shape, you want to start exercising, it's not so much about the quality of your workout. You can have the best workout. You can have the best personal trainer, and you've got, you got the plan. It's a big notebook. If you go twice a month, you're not doing anything, okay? The more important thing when you work out is the consistency. Even if you go 10 or 20 minutes a day, that's much better. So it is with our Bible. So it is with reading our Bible. View it not like a vacation, but like going to the gym. Second, how do we stand firm against this above-it-all mentality? Well, here's what we do. We fight to grow in humility. Crazy, huh? Super sexy. No. Old hat. Nothing new here. Fight to grow in humility. Proverbs verse 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. You see, to lean on our own understanding is to trust in our own instincts, to rely on our own confidence. But we saw that doesn't work. I've said this before. It's a very countercultural idea to mistrust your instincts, mistrust your guts. But that's the case because our own sin. And so get used to the fact. Don't be surprised. There's going to be times in your life when your instinct and your gut tells you something different than what God says. What you need to do, what I need to do is learn to mistrust ourselves, learn to trust God. He's got a better track record than you and me. Be prepared for it. Don't be surprised by it. So back to our presenting issue here, this above mentality of not coming to Veritas. You know, tell yourself next semester that, you know what, no matter how long I've been around, no matter what I believe, you know, even though I've heard a text preached, uh, maybe I've got something more to hear. Even though I've been to this small group and I know how the lesson's going to go, maybe I should go because, gosh, maybe somebody has a story I need to hear that really hits me. Or maybe I can pray for someone. Who knows? Who knows? Third one, how do we stand firm against sexual sin? Two specific ways I'll suggest. The first is to be vulnerable. Don't hide it. Bring somebody in to the struggle. Tell a close friend Uh, or a mentor, just about your struggle, about what's going on. And do not observe the 97% rule. You know what the 97% rule is? It's where you tell people 97% of what's going on, but you leave out that 3%. You know what that 3%, that's probably what you and I need to talk about most. Don't observe the 97% rule. Observe the 100% rule. James 5.16 says this, Confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. There's something healing about confessing, about being vulnerable. Here's the second thing to fight sexual sin. Adopt new habits. We'd be naive to think that the things that we do do not shape the things that we love. It's absolutely a correlation. You know, what if for the next two weeks, or even over break, you went to bed an hour earlier than you planned? What if instead of watching YouTube for the first 30 minutes of the day or the last hour of the day, that you actually decided, you know what, I'm going to... I'm going to pray the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to pray Psalm 23. I'm going to find something, and I'm just going to read it. You know, what if you got up every day and read your Bible for 10 minutes every day, first thing? What if on your way to the first thing you do, whether it's your class, whether it's your test, you just go somewhere by yourself, you sit for five minutes, and you ask Jesus to help you throughout the day. You say, Jesus, I need you. I know I don't feel it right now, but I need you to go into this test. I need you when I go home be around this group of friends. I need you to be with me when I'm home by myself. Help me to be smart. Help me to be wise. Habits. New habits. Psalm 91.15. This is a great psalm. Asking God to help. It's not a pointless exercise. Here's what God says. When his people call on him, when they call to me, God says, I will answer them. I will be with them 
in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. Here's the last one. How do we stand firm against our self-talk? Well, rather than listening to yourself, start talking to yourself. Do it in your head. You can talk to yourself out loud if you want. That's fine. Who cares? But, but talk to yourself. You know, don't sit silently and just listen and just take all these voices coming at you. Fight back. Say something back. You know, pick a verse that directly contradicts those voices. If you're telling yourself, as the script in your head is, I'm too ashamed, I'm too shameful, I can't come, Jesus will never accept me. Quote Romans 8.1. Hopefully it's on the board behind me. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not there. It's okay. I forgot to include it. Romans 8.1. Look it up sometime. There is therefore no... How about that? I read the crowd. Look at that. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you hear a voice that tells you that, you know, looking at porn or shopping or smoking weed or doing whatever else is you do to try and give yourself rest and peace, memorize Matthew 11.28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not porn, not shopping, not weed, not whatever. I will give you the rest that you need. Here's the th- second thing we do to stand firm against our self-talk. First was, don't listen to yourself, talk to yourself. Second, find some friends. Find some friends. Be vulnerable with them. Talk to them and say, you know what? Okay, this is so stupid. I know it's not true, but here's the script in my head. Here's what I'm telling myself. Please, tell me it's not true. What do I need to hear? That's not weird at all. If you feel like it's weird, get over it because it's not. It's normal. This is what we need to do. If you're going to be someplace where you don't have Christian friends over break, pick up a phone, call somebody, plan a time to come hang out, go have a sleepover for a couple days. Who knows? I don't care. Find a friend as if you needed my approval. Austin, can I come over? No. (laughs) Lots of pressures. Lots of enticements. Lots of things that we can do to stand firm against them. But here's the deal. The last and most important question we got to ask ourselves is, is it worth it? Giving you guys a lot of options, lots of things to do, but you got to ask, is it worth it? Is it worth it to go all through this hard work? Is it easier just to move? Would it be better? Why should I stand firm? Back to where we started, Philippians 4.1. You'll notice that Paul starts the verse by saying, therefore. Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love, and the rest of the verse. Whenever you see the word therefore, we have to look back to what was said just before it. And what we find is just before this call, Paul gives us reasons why it's worth it. If we go back to that metaphor just for a second about the house, he is reminding us why the house we already have is so great. Why the house we already have is worth fighting for. And he tells us what's in that house that's much better than anything else out there. Now, let's read 3, 20 to 21 in Philippians. Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I see four things here. We only have time to talk about Two, here's the first thing. Paul tells us that we have a person. Three, end of verse 20, says we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This affects the entire group. So that original audience, the Philippians, they understood having Jesus as a Savior, and they would one day be saved from their political circumstances. They're ruled over by the emperor, trying to persecute them because they're not worshiping him. One day Jesus is going to save the entire group of people from that. Not only that, he's also going to save them from just a miserable life. The pain, the hurt, the sadness, the sickness. He's going to save all of them. 
So it is with us. So it is with us. The story is ending with the pain and the hurt and the confusion ending, healed and restored by Jesus coming back. That's true of all of us as a people if we believe in Jesus. But of course, having Jesus as a Savior, it affects us as individuals as well. It means Jesus has saved us from our past, our present, and our future sins. That is millions and millions and millions of sins. We are saved by them. If you're ever nervous, ever scared for Jesus to come back because you're worried kind of where you stand with him, if you and I are fighting to believe Jesus, 51%, a little bit more than not, then we have nothing to fear. We genuinely need him. We have nothing to fear because he's our savior. He came to save people. He's saving us. And that's good news. Other reason it's worth standing firm, other reason the house is worth staying put for is that we have a power. We have a power. Philippians 3.21, this Savior, Jesus, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject himself, even to subject all things to himself. You see, the reality is we are being acted upon by Jesus every single day, whether we know it or not. He says, Paul, the apostle says elsewhere in Ephesians 1, 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. We need to see it in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Let's watch a clip from Finding Nemo. clip. Maybe I'll watch that movie over break. Did you notice the power of that current that they were in? Yeah, of course you did. Once Dory and Marlon, you know, they got caught up in that current. They were on the fast track to their destination. And notice what happened when they got out. They stopped. This is, in a kind of a small and maybe a silly way, this is what it's like being a part of the people of God. We've been placed in a powerful current it's taking us to our destination. You know, it doesn't always feel like that, but it's always there. And that's why Paul prays that we have eyes to see it. Jesus has given us access to. He's brought us into that current by his death and his resurrection. He's pulling us towards where we need to go. We are being acted upon by him. You're caught up in that current, and that's what guarantees that we're going to make it. But if we move, well, we stop moving. If we leave, it's not going to go well. So stand firm. 
As the music team comes up, I want to close with a thought and a psalm. Thoughts uh, from a guy, his name is John Stott. He was an English pastor and theologian. And in one of the books that he wrote, he was getting at the question of how is it possible for Christians? How is it possible for Christians, God's people as a whole, to stand firm? How do you not move? How do you stay there? And, And he said that, you know, on our own, it's impossible. We can't do it on our own. And he said, if you gave me a play like Hamlet and told me to write something just as good, I couldn't do it. Shakespeare could, but I couldn't. And in the same way, it's no good showing me how to stand firm. It's no good telling me what I need to do and what not to do because I can't do it. But, but what if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me? If the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. In the same way, if the power of Jesus could come and could live in me and could help me, then we could stand firm. That's happened. That's true. Psalm 121 says this. The Lord will not let your foot be moved. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Because that is true, let's stand firm in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we acknowledge and confess just the pressures and the enticements that are out there in our own minds, in our own hearts. God, we know they're there. We confess the ways that we've given into them that we're tempted to leave. Would you give us the courage, give us the power, give us the strength to stand firm against those things. As finals are coming up, as Christmas break is coming up, coming up, give us a sensitivity, give us a desire, a wisdom to know what you want for us. Not just to about it in our minds, but live it out. We thank you so much for Jesus, for what you have done for us, for saving us. Would you watch over us this day and forevermore? In Jesus' name we pray.